Columbia Technology Ventures presents Patenting and Licensing Early Stage University Technology with our Executive Director, Oren Herskowitz. For more information, visit techventures.columbia.edu. Just by way of introduction, so my name is Oren Herskowitz. I'm, I have two roles uh, within the university officially. I'm the Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures which is the tech transfer office of the university. And if you don't know what that means, you'll find out over the next hour. I'm also the vice president of intellectual property and tech transfer, which means it's a little bit, I have other roles around the university that are a bit broader than tech transfer exclusively. For instance, I teach the class, as I mentioned to some of you here. Um, there's information on the class at the end in case anyone in the room wants to take the full semester and half semester version. Um, Registration is coming up shortly. Um, in terms of today, what I'm going to try and cover is a little bit first in context around the University of Intellectual Property. Uh, I will be focusing primarily today on the commercial side, which is not to say that's the only thing. Uh, there's many reasons that one might decide to try and invent things and get them to market. Um, people coming to these talks typically are interested in the business of intellectual property. Um, as much as anything else, and so it, because it's quantifiable and I have data on it, I've focused on that, but I'm perfectly happy to talk about the, for instance, the global health implications of, of any of this stuff as well. Um, I'll then talk a little bit about what Columbia's experience has been in this space, and then cover a little bit about sort of patents 101, and if people are interested, I can get into how license agreements get negotiated, um, what kind of considerations there typically are, and how those negotiations typically go. So first of all, um, the patents, there's a lot of, uh, the, the popular press has been covering patents quite a bit over the last couple of years. At least I've been doing this for about eight years. I joined, I was, I was in the Boston Consulting Group prior to coming to Columbia for seven years. I'm an English major with an MBA and no technology background. So keep that in mind during today's talks. Um, uh, when I joined in 2006, this was not a topic that typically made the front page of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. And over the last couple of years, um, as you noticed, the, as I'm sure you've noticed, there's been a lot of press um, on the role of patents in American society, whether they're good or bad, um, potential changes in the patent law, whether we're drowning in new patents. If you look at the data, um, there certainly has been, uh, you know, you look at this and you'd say, well, since, since World War II, there clearly has been a massive escalation in the number of patents that have been awarded. Whether you think that's a good or bad thing, again, is more philosophical, but the data sort of speaks for itself. On the other hand, what most of the newspapers don't dwell on is that when you adjust this for the GDP growth within the U.S., so just the overall size of the economy, the story changes fairly considerably. So in terms of the number of patents awarded, what you'll see is that it's, not, it's within a, a fairly tight band adjusted for GDP, although from 2008 onward, we see a fairly steep escalation. But again, to put that in context, it's still lower than what we saw in 1951. Um, on the other hand, the number of patent applications uh, is a sort of more noticeable trend. So more people applying for patents, whether or not they get them. Um, why do we care? Well, at some level, we care because there's really big money at stake. Um, I'll just give a couple of examples from, from the recent years. So first of all, as was widely covered in the press, 
Um, uh, Apple and Samsung were going at it hammer and tongs um, over the design patents and technology and utility patents in the iPhone and these various Samsung smartphones, uh, which led to a $930 million judgment against Samsung. That has now been appealed and whittled away, but uh, a lot of money was spent both in litigation and potentially in damages around that one. Um, Google bought Motorola Mobility, which was the, the cell business uh, within Motorola, and I think it was a $12 billion sale, which they then sold off or abandoned all the operating businesses parts of that in exchange for roughly $8 billion in cash and other benefits. The only thing they kept was the 17,000 patents that were within the portfolio. Um, so it's sort of, if you think about it that way, they spent about $4 billion to get those patents. So a lot of money being spent by some of the large companies in buying these patents. This is an interesting transaction. I'm not gonna go into the details of this one, but I do recommend, there's a fascinating article on this. Uh, Nortel, Canadian telecommunications company, went bankrupt, and as part of that, they carved, they took all the patents from around the whole company and bundled them together, uh, resulting in a bidding war between, on one hand, Apple, Ericsson, Microsoft, a very unlikely consortium came together. Anytime Apple and Microsoft are on the same side of a deal, you've got to wonder what's going on. On the other side was Google and briefly Intel, uh, bidding against each other in an auction. The auction started at $900 million for this bundle of 4,000 patents, very quickly escalated up to around 4.4 uh, 4 billion was the final bid entered by Google. Interestingly, Google being Google, all of their bids were math jokes. So they bid 3.14159 billion, they bid the distance between the Earth and the Sun, uh, they bid a mathematical constant, um, but they lost in the end. Um, so Apple and Microsoft bid 4.5 billion, won all the patents and then spun out um, an entity called Rockstar, which is now going and suing people to enforce the patents that were purchased in the auction. It's a fascinating story. Wired Magazine has a very long article on it, which is worth reading, called How Apple and Microsoft Armed 4,000 Patent Warheads, um, which goes through the whole transaction and what's happened since then. But it's definitely worth a read. Um, and then, close to home, Carnegie Mellon last year won a uh, litigation against Marvell, the semiconductor company, for one patent, $1.1 billion in damages. So there's very big money at stake. Uh, a lot of people are paying attention. Um, so just to put this in context, <clears throat> what I've done here is people say, well, so what are universities doing in this space? You know, these are, these are largely big companies. So I'll explain sort of why we're at the table and how this tends to emerge. What this is, is we've looked at the last 20 years worth of data across the entire US university space. So this is all US universities, all the data over 20 years. And what you'll see is, of the $700 billion or so of research funding that's come in, it's led to approximately 300,000 invention disclosures it's around $2.4 million per disclosure. What's interesting about that, and I always find this strange, I've mentioned this to some of you guys, but what I always find strange about that is that's kind of a, an odd uh, like Fibonacci number of university tech transfer. Um, at the universities doing this at scale, like the big universities that have big tech transfer offices, 
that number might be as low as 1.8, 1.9 million dollars per invention. At the smaller ones, it might be 2.5, 2.6, 2.8, but it's not a huge spread. It seems like roughly for, a, for every about two and a half million dollars of sponsored research going on at the institution, an invention rolls off the conveyor belt. Um, of those, about 60% nationwide get patent applications, and about a third of those turn to award patents, which leads to, over the years, about 50,000 active licenses, about 7,500 startups, 150 new drugs and devices, tons of jobs, so all very promising. Um, to take a step back, uh, how many folks here have, have submitted an invention report either to, a, like, have, have come up with an invention that they've told either their employers about or their university or filed a patent on your own? Um, to, no? Yeah, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> to the software, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so what, I'm just going to take a moment to explain what we mean by invention. So, just by way of example, um, I'm going to go through just quickly three examples of inventions that we received in our office. So, um, Zabi Marka in the, the uh, physics department um, uh, mostly spends his time using, uh, analyzing, uh, using light to measure distance of, di of, of distant objects in the solar system. Um, but he came up with a way to tune light so that it irritates mosquitoes' sensory glands. So, what happens here is on the left, you'll see when the light wall is off, the mosquitoes will fly all over the space. And when he turns this light wall on, the mosquitoes just bounce around behind the wall. Um, so you can think of all sorts of applications for this. Uh, you know, obviously eradicate, potentially um, uh, helping people avoid malaria in countries that are plagued by malaria would be an obvious application. You could also imagine this being sold in Target, for instance. Um, as to help people keep mosquitoes out of their house, or maybe like a Tom's Shoes model, where you sell one in Target, and for every one someone buys in Target, it gets given away somewhere else. So there's a lab in the basement of Pupin Hall now, filled with mosquitoes, um, where Zabi is working on perfecting this light. Um, uh, similarly, uh, Tom Grinspan, in the Department of Computer Science, submitted one on the, actually the title, I think was Modeling of Flexible Fibers and Elastic Rods. So these are some photos from, from the, the journal articles on this. Uh, this is dripping honey on a conveyor belt. And as you speed up the conveyor belt, the pattern of the honey changes. So his algorithms predict how the honey will fall and curl. He also does this with rubber bands. Like if you twist a rubber band in different directions, how will it kink and bend? Um, or for instance, if you drip raspberry jelly on a chocolate bunny, how will it fall? So you look at this and you might say, I'm not entirely, it's not immediately obvious to me how you would commercialize something like this. These inventions have been, uh, have been used in Hollywood studios. So if anyone here see Tangled, the Disney movie? Heard of it? Okay, so, <laughs> so um, the heroine's hair, the hair is actually the, in some ways the main character of the movie. It's about her hair. Um, and the hair is modeled significantly using uh, the algorithm. Developed because it's very good. At, it turns out it's very good at modeling the way that force will react to individual strands of hair, as opposed to having sort of the helmet head used to get the old video games from the 1990s. Um, it's also in a startup called Thunderlily here in New York, which is a fashion company. Uh, we license it to a fashion company because you can go online if you're a clothes designer and choose the fabric, 
and you know with certain qualities, and then um, do virtual cutting to see how the fabric will actually fall on a model. And then as the model moves, you can see how the dress would sort of sway um, before you actually have to commit to using the fabric. Um, not all of them are as lighthearted. Uh, this is a surgical robot that is, um, uh, was licensed to a, to a startup company, but the idea is to, uh, it's, it's sort of a fixed surgical robot that attaches into the palate and then allows very precise um, surgical techniques to be done on the eye and the ear uh, in a way that wouldn't be done previously. Pretty scary looking drawing though. <laughs> so, so you look at these and you go, well this is great. I mean everybody, all the universities must just be swimming in research funds. Like all this stuff is licensed, there's all these startups. What a great story. Um, the problem is that the sort of what I would call the, the happy end of our funnel that you saw earlier is the riskiest end of the venture capital and industry funnel. So we celebrate when we license something to a venture capitalist. So we did 18 startups through our office last year, 18 startups based on university technologies, and every one of them we celebrated. But each of them is just beginning the very hard journey ahead, and most of them will probably fail. Similarly, when we do a license to a pharmaceutical uh, compound to one of the big pharma companies, that's great. But now it's just the one in 100 compounds that enter big pharma's pipeline that ever makes it to market. So the odds are stacked against any kind of real returns. And that's backed up when you look at the numbers. So this is the last available year of data of all the US universities arrayed on the x-axis and their licensing returns on the y-axis. What you see here is that basically, I think this, the number that I saw in a previous study was that 84% of the US universities lose money in tech transfer every year. And that's actually on a gross basis. So they spend more to keep their offices open than they do the money they bring in. And that's not even taking into account that most of the money that comes in gets distributed back out to the inventors, to their labs, to the departments and schools. It's a pretty bad business, frankly, for most universities. Um, then there's a handful of universities here that are breaking even or possibly even making a little money, and then some that are doing quite well with this. But we're pleased to say that Columbia has been in the top two or three in the country for the last 20 years straight. Um, yes? Funny you should mention that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, these are the other 10. I'll note that just because you're not in the top 10 doesn't mean you're not running a, a, you're not a good research university. You'll notice you're surprised by who's not on this list. Yep, who else? Harvard. Johns Hopkins, number one recipient of NIH funding. These are amazing universities. It also doesn't mean that you're running a bad tech transfer office. So many of those institutions have phenomenal tech transfer offices. Um, it's also interesting to note some of the ones that are on this list. So until recently, schools like Emory and Wake Forest were on the list with fairly small schools with small research budgets. So I'll talk a little bit about why. Um, why is this so hard? 
Okay, so um, the first thing to keep in mind is, have people here heard of the Valley of Death? By show of hands. Okay, so I'll, 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 so people talk about the Valley of Death. So what is the Valley of Death? The Valley of Death, basically, if you look at an invention and the path from the aha moment until that invention sells the first product, you've got this progression which starts with basic research, then the faculty member or the researchers, the grad students have to do some feasibility studies to make sure it literally works. It's not just a good idea, but it's an idea that actually works, science works. Then there needs to be prototyping typically, um, or in the case of biopharma, uh, you know, early clinical trials, um, early market testing, product development, marketing, and sales, you know, and then you're, and then you, you, you're sort of actually out in the real world. Um, unfortunately, government and foundation grants typically only pay for the stuff on the left. And by and large, industry and VCs only want to fund the stuff on the right. So that's the value of death. It's the time in the middle where all your funding's run out and no one will invest in you yet, but you're not ready for market. Um, I, I just, just by way of example, I, I just, just the, the frenzy around this. There's lots of newspapers that talk about the Valley of Death. This just happened to be my favorite one. Um, in terms of sort of the hyperbole that gets associated with people writing about technology, uh, you know, when things are good, they're the best ever. This new Samsung Galaxy Tab 4 is going to revolutionize everything. And when things are bad, the tides turn very quickly. But I love this, like, skull and crossbones where new technologies go to die alone littered with the decaying corpses of technologies. So it's pretty bad. I don't know if it's that bad, but it's pretty bad. Um, anyway, so, so uh, that's the value of death. Um, where do we see this in our world? So we look back at the last uh, 30 years of licensing efforts that we've done at, at Columbia. And what we found is that after the inventions get submitted to us, on average, it takes about three years. This is just for inventions that eventually got licensed. So of the ones that were successful in that sense, that we got out the door and into the market so, they could, so people could use them, or at least investors could invest and companies could license them, it took about three years to get to the 50% mark in terms of deals that got executed. Most of the stuff sits around for a decent chunk of time. And what you'll see is that even ones that eventually got licensed, you know, by year six and seven, there were still 20% of the deals that would eventually get done that hadn't yet gotten done. Yes? Sorry, the, the disclosure submission, is that the moment you're awarded the patent? The no, disclosure submission is when the uh, researcher tells us about the invention. So before the patent. Correct. So what typically happens on our side is uh, an inventor will tell us about a new invention, and we have a process in place which uses the fellows program that you mentioned earlier to analyze those inventions for patentability and commercial potential. And then based on that, we either file a patent application, which we do in about 67% of the time, so about two thirds of the time. Um, we will file a what's called a provisional patent application. And then over the course of the next year, we'll usually convert, we'll convert many of those into full patent applications and try and license them. Do you reject um, uh, a patent beyond the other 33% of the time? Does the uh, inventor or the professor 
Yeah, so we waive anything we don't file on or anything that we file on but then later decide to abandon, we always offer back to the researchers. Um, it becomes their own personal property. Uh, some universities demand a percentage of future payments in exchange for that. We don't. Uh, we do ask for any patent expenses we've already put into it to get paid back once they start making money in the future. But, um, yeah, absolutely. Because our, our mission is to try to get stuff out into the world. It's why we're, we here, or it's why we're here. It's it's why we're filing these patents in the first place. If we're not going to do anything with them, better that someone does. Uh, I will say that it's very rare that anyone takes us up on that. Because if we haven't been able to license it, generally the researchers don't feel like they're going to have much of a better shot. Uh, so actually, Liz in the room manages that project, that program for us. So of the 400 inventions we get a year, yeah. roughly how many times a year would you say we, we execute the waiver back? Like three or four times a year. Yeah. So it's offered in 133%. 33% we don't proceed on. Only four out of 400 does anyone actually take those rights back, as opposed to just giving them up. So 30, 130 times a year, we go, we're not going to do anything with this. Do you want it? And all but four, they say, no thanks. So that's actually a little surprising, except that many of the researchers understand these dynamics of what we're talking about, which is it takes a really long time to get things to be licensed. Oh, by the way, this chart, people often say, well, that must be for bio, for, that makes sense for life sciences, but for physical sciences, it must be much shorter. So we, we ran the analysis, it's the same. It's essentially the same chart. And then, and then we, 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 re, we ran it again for exclusive licenses versus non-exclusive licenses, same thing. We ran it again for uh, licenses with royalties, meaning it could be a big deal, and versus tiny, smaller ones, same chart. And then we asked our peers to run the same analysis. So the National Cancer Institute, actually they'd already done this study, that's the slope of their, their curve. The University of California system did this for all of their licenses. Cornell. Pretty much the same slope. I don't know why. Yeah. On how long, when do you guys start shopping um, the uh, IP uh, for licensing? And yeah. it'll come to you with the initial disclosure, but there's a certain period of time when you're still filing the provisional, you know, might not be transparent about it yet and reaching out to the community. Right, so it's a great question. Um, if this were GE or IBM or Pfizer, there would be the luxury of saying to the researcher, great idea, why don't we just hold off on filing the patent on this for a couple of years? Or we'll file the patent, but let's not tell anyone about it. But we're a very, very small part of the university. Um, and including our mission, essentially, is to never get in the way of the actual mission of the university, which is research and teaching. So the last thing we would want is to have a faculty member not publish a paper or speak at a conference or collaborate with their peers, simply because we want to protect the trade secret. So typically, what happens with us is um, we file a provisional, often within a couple of months, sometimes within a couple of hours of getting the invention. We will occasionally get a researcher who's, this is bad practice, don't do this, but we will occasionally get a researcher who will call us at the airport on the way to a conference and say, oops, I forgot to tell you about this one. Can you file a provisional? I'm gonna give a paper tomorrow morning when I land. And so we'll file a quick provisional application just to get something recorded. 
But uh, Margie in the room manages all of our marketing efforts. Um, from what percentage of our provisionals that we file? So guess, I know I didn't prep you for this and you don't know the answer. <laughs> what would you guess is the percentage of provisionals that go up on our website within six months of us filing them, would you say? Low. We usually get them on the website after we convert, um, after the conversion decision, and then it's probably 75%. Okay. So we'll often file provision. I'll, we'll cover this later. Do people know what a provisional patent is versus a full patent? Okay, I'm seeing two nodding heads, nods. I'm, okay, so very briefly, a provisional patent the, patent, the patent office gives you the right to file what's called a provisional patent, which is very cheap and fast. And actually, you can even file something called a cover sheet provisional which is basically you take someone's scientific paper and you slap a piece of paper on top and submit it. Um, it gives you a year to then do more work before having to finalize what the patent actually is. So we will file provisional patents on two thirds of our inventions that come in the door, but only end up converting about two thirds of those into full patents after 12 months. Why? Sometimes the science doesn't work. Sometimes the science works, but it turns out that in our analysis, it looks like there's no market for it. Sometimes the PIs never get around to finishing it, or the grad student graduates and leaves, and we don't get the data that would enable us to file a patent. But once we know it's a patent, we pretty much put it up in order. Yeah? No, well, so, the answer to that is somewhat complicated. The short answer is provisional patents only last a year. You can abandon the provisional patent and refile another cheap provisional, but only if there's been no disclosure except for that provisional in the year. If you're interested in the details on all this, um, on our website, which is techventures.columbia.edu, there's a link to the full, uh, full lecture on Patents 101. It happened a couple of weeks ago. Jeff Sears covers a lot of this stuff. Um, okay, also, blockbusters drive most of the revenue, but are very, very, very rare. So this is, of all of the active licenses across the entire industry, granted the data is kind of old here because it's the last year that the industry collected the right data I needed to do the analysis, but of the total active licenses going on in a given year, only 40% of them generated a dollar of revenue, and less than 1% generated more than a million dollars a year. But licensing, uh, one of the reasons I think this is a fun area is um, uh, licensing is essentially, it's endlessly creative in the sense that when you're buying a car, there's really only a couple of levers you can play with or buying a house. Um, actually, buying a house is an even better example. You're buying a house from someone and it's, it takes place at one moment in time and your most house sales don't end up with people cohabitating you know, together with the prior owner. Um, it's not like it's a partial sale. Uh, there's a, you pay all at once. You might have a mortgage, but once the transaction's done, you're done. Um, in IP licensing, you can do almost anything you want. You can make exclusive Exclusive or non-exclusive. You can license exclusively, but only in China, or only in China, Japan, and Korea, or exclusive only for the first four years and then non-exclusive thereafter or non-exclusive for the first three or four years, but with the option to convert to exclusive. Um, 
You could license it for therapeutic use and do a different company for diagnostic use. You can do whatever you want. As long as the other party agrees, you can do whatever you want. Can yeah. Um, most people that are going to take on the license, they're going to pump a lot of money behind the product, making it work through that Death Valley. So they want to know that they have it exclusively, and that they're not they'll competing with other people. They'll pay more exclusively, but it could be in a specific category of use or a specific application. But they don't want to pump billions of dollars, especially pharma companies, into a technology if they know that their competitor sure. can also use it. But actually, I will say three of our four. Three of our four biggest uh, revenue generating patents were licensed not exclusively. Yeah, I mean, it seems so, like if, yeah. it seems like if it's a general method, then then it's okay. But if your competitor is doing product X, and, you know, yeah, you know, what I mean, like, yeah, right, and you, you can have be, a product, but actual a method to do something, I would imagine. Yeah, exclusivity is a method. And actually, when you think about it, the our guidelines, the Buy Dole Act is what sort of got tech transfer going, but our guidelines are very clearly to where we can encourage broad adoption of technologies. So wherever we can do a non-exclusive license, we like doing non-exclusive licenses. Um, sometimes you can't do a non-exclusive because people want exclusive rights at least within their business. So you might say, great, startup X, you could have an exclusive to do this for, um, uh, you know, voice over IP protocols for use in the security field, home monitoring and security, and you can have it for E911, and you can have it for something else. And it still gives them the market protection, but gets the technology out there as broadly as possible. Yeah? Uh, just curious, I mean, the person the last time, the full time, I mean, so the late and drops So, Sadly for us, but good for the world, patents expire. <laughs> so the theory behind patents is, uh, I mean, the, if you go back to you know, the, the, the reasons behind why patents exist, people say um, the patents transfer a monopoly to the inventors to encourage people to invent and tell people about stuff. So if you didn't have patents, people would invent things and not tell anyone about them and keep them secrets, and then the world wouldn't benefit from that technology over time. The theory with patents, which people argue about, is that you give a monopoly to the company, let's say uh, a drug company, so they can, which, which they may then go around and charge $100,000 for a treatment. But after 20 years, that will become available to the world. So during the 20 years, they get a monopoly in order to encourage the innovation. After that, they expire. Okay, um, and unfortunately, patents are very, very, very expensive, and uh, all, most of those costs are front-loaded. So we've talked about how these inventions take a really long time to get to market. The challenge is that by year four, I said only about 50% of the deals get done in the first three years. By three years in, you've probably spent $20,000, $30,000 per patent. And if you go international and file in, the, in, the, in Europe or each of the Asian countries, you're looking at another $100,000, $150,000 per country that you're going to over the first five to seven years. So you might have a great idea and you want to protect it in all the countries in the world, but if it's ahead of its time, you could be looking at seven or eight years in and half a million dollars in patent expenses. So as we tell our startups, 
Patents are great if you need them. Not, they're not right for every company. Um, it's not always the right decision, and it's not always the right decision to file broadly, and it's not always the right decision to file as many patents as you can. Okay, so that's the broad context. Um, I'm gonna blow through this part relatively fast, but what is our mission? So our main mission, and we take this very seriously, is to translate academic research and get it out into the world so it can save people's lives, make people's lives better. Um, we try to do so at a fair economic return to the university so that we can support the research enterprise. What does that mean? Well, when we bring in a dollar, it gets shared with the faculty personally, I'm sorry, the researchers personally, not just the faculty, importantly, um, all the inventors in the patent share in the revenue. Uh, the research labs, the departments, the schools, and the broad university all share in those. And the university share is mandated to, it, mandated to go back to support the research enterprise. So it can't be spent on things beyond that. It usually goes to building buildings, medical schools, things like that. And finally, to educate and serve the community. So we try to teach classes, we guest lecture at departments, we you know, do webinars, things like that. Um, how have we been doing? Well, so this is the last, since 2008, um, just a quick snapshot. Generally, we're around 400 inventions a year these days. We do about 100 licenses and options to industry every year. And we're approximately 18 startup companies each year based on university technology. That's a very small fraction, by the way, of the number of startups coming out of Columbia more broadly. So two of the students in my intellectual property class this past year um, just launched a company that is doing gangbusters on Kickstarter. It's very exciting. They make custom-made boots. There are no patents behind the technology. They did not come to our office. We had nothing to do with it except for the fact that I bought a pair of boots. Um, <laughs> but, but there's no, you know, there's nothing, they're not, that wouldn't show up on the slide. Um, here's a, some examples of products that use Columbia technology. Uh, generally the life sciences stuff on the upper left and some of the more lighthearted ones in the lower right. Um, whole bunch of startups, over 150 startups spun out of Columbia over the last 20 years based on tech, tech transfer. Of these, uh, we've actually had a pretty good run. So more than 40 were VC backed, nine went public, 18 got acquired, it's been a good run. And as you can see, it's across the whole, uh, you know, cybersecurity, clean energy, um, uh, meeting communications, fashion, pharma devices, health analytics, uh, it's a, been a pretty good run so far. So what is a, what is a patent? Uh, a, a patent, and some of these words are underlined on purpose. A patent is a national legal protection. There's no such thing as a worldwide patent. You have to eventually file in every country that you want patent protection in. So most US inventors will first file in the US, and then you have 30 or so months to decide what other countries you want to file in. And after that, you've got to file in each of the countries. Actually, it's a little bit not true in Europe. You can file in Europe initially and then have to choose countries within Europe later. But eventually, you have to file in specific countries. Um, for an invention, so what is an invention? So an invention, I'll get into this on the next slide too, but it's a solution to a real-world problem that works for its intended purpose. That doesn't mean it's a good idea. It just has to literally work to do what it says it's gonna do. And I'll give you an example. I actually have the patent we can pass around if people are interested. Um, 
And so people often think like, great, I've got a patent on this. That means I can go do my invention. I can go like start a company on it. A patent does not allow you to do anything. All a patent allows you to do is stop someone else from doing something. It's a negative right. So you could have an invention. You could theoretically get an issued patent on a, um, a ladder, let's say. You could get invention, you could get an issued patent on the use of an extendable ladder for uh, some sort of purpose. But if someone else has an underlying patent on the ladder itself, then you wouldn't be able to start a company using your patent without a license to the underlying ladder itself. So where you'll see this is you can theoretically take a known compound from a pharmaceutical company and file a patent using that known compound, but for a surprising use. You wouldn't be able to do anything with that because the underlying compound would be patented and the drug company could stop you from doing something with it. But on the other hand, they could no longer use their compound for that use either without a license to your patent. So it's a negative use. Okay, how do you know if your invention is patentable? I'm gonna skim past this because the whole, this is a, the question of what is patentable subject matter is an active debate at the Supreme Court level. So I'm certainly not going to opine on what is or is not. There's, very, there's a lot of questions these days about like are what gene patents, people have heard of the, there's the case called the Myriad case if you're interested in that, but like are genes uh, patentable? And the similar debates exist now about software and business methods. So by and large, the, the famous sort of business method patents, the like, you know, Amazon One Click and others, generally seem to be out of favor. Um, software is still, like some types of software are and algorithms, some aren't. So one of Columbia's four biggest returns have been from patents that are algorithms. They're methods of data compression, and those are still valid, but other software is not. So it's an evolving area. Um, but generally, it has to have some use. It's the utility. It has to be novel, meaning no one else can have thought of it before. And that's in patent terms, it's called prior art. So is there any prior art or prior knowledge about this, this invention? And it also has to be non-obvious. So even if it's novel, someone can undermine your patent by saying, well, sure, it's novel. No one had literally thought of that exact invention before, but it was obvious to anyone who sort of knew the space and therefore can be undermined. So patents are very fragile. And what you'll find is that it's not, uh, patents get awarded by the patent office. And then if someone sues to have that patent invalidated later, patents will often become invalid. So, so companies might invest a lot of money in a patent only to find out later that it was rendered invalid and you've lost your patent. Um, I'll actually, I won't distribute the patent, but there's an interesting patent uh, if you're interested in looking at it later, I'll, I'll leave some copies up here. But it's a U.S. patent 6865. By the way, when people refer to patents, they're always looking at the patent number up there. This is an issued patent. Um, it is for a mousetrap in the shape of a cat. <laughs> so I'm going to pause right there because that seems like it goes against millions of years of mouse biology. <laughs> 
<laughs> the idea here is that the mouse will crawl into the cat's mouth because the cat is emitting a cheese odor. Which again, I'm not sure who's going to want that in their house, like an odor, cheese odor emanating from a cat. Um, the cat is then stuffed with more robotics than your iPhone has. So it's got like glowing eyes, and it's got this cheese odor. There's a motion detector in the mouth, so that when it senses that the mouth closes, and then it, it vacuum seals and sucks all the air out, and then uh, kills the mouse through suffocation. So this may well be just <laughs> the least useful patent I can imagine. Um, in that it, it's got to cost a couple of thousand dollars if this ever got made. Um, I mean, this is like Rube Goldbergian in the most, in the most extreme way, and yet there is an issue patent on it. But they, they uh, locked themselves into a cat if you created a dog. Exactly. <laughs> if you created a dog, if you have two motion sensors instead of one motion, actually, if they propose two and you have one, if it's instead of a cheese odor, it's wine. The more broad the patent is, the more protection you would have. So that's exactly the point about what the patent... So first of all, actually, I will, um, I'm not going to... Well, sure, actually, I'll pass this around. Let's not go too deep into this, but I will pass this around. Um, maybe just take one and pass it around. Um, there's lots of stuff in the patent that you're going to see in front of you. There's an, uh, what's called an abstract up here on the front page that kind of describes it. There's drawings. Um, it's lots of drawings. Uh, there's the, the background of the invention. Um, yeah, I also love description of the related art. Mice often make unwanted intrusions into the lives of people from all walks of life in this country. So it's apparently it's only a US problem. Other countries don't have mice. Um, so anyway, but all of this is, is, none of that is useful. The part that's useful are the claims. Um, so you looked on the very last, on the second to last page, starting with what is claimed is one. A portable electronic mousetrap for capturing and killing a mouse, comprising. And then it lists all the things that are in that mousetrap. So it's those claims that define the invention. So um, what you always want to do with a patent is basically skip everything else and just go straight into the claims. The claims are like a surveyor's map in real estate. They define the boundaries that you are protecting where you want this negative right. On one hand, I'm sorry, tell me your name again? David. David. On one hand, David's point is right. The broader claims you stake, the more valuable the patent will be. On the other hand, the broader you try and claim, the more likely it is that someone else has invented something that would serve as prior art behind it. So the idea of a mousetrap would no longer be patentable today, because mousetraps have existed for centuries. The idea of an electronic mousetrap would not be portable. I actually own one. Um, they exist. It's not shaped like a cat, though. <laughs> it doesn't have cheese odor. It doesn't have vacuums in the middle. So once you add all those things in, it's, well, it's non-obvious. I think we could safely say that's a non-obvious invention. Um, it's novel. Uh, it, it literally would work for its intended purpose. I mean, maybe. 
<laughs> the mouse would crawl in. If a mouse did it and it to get in the mouse, it would in the mouth of the cat, it would it would die. Um, so it works. Uh, and that specifically, these claims, I guess the patent office decided had not been invented by anyone else. So there was no prior art. So you, you own an electric mouse trap. I literally own an electric mouse trap. So someone has a patent on an electric mouse trap. Maybe. If so, would these guys need a license from them? Than to create their version of it only depends on what that mousetrap claimed. So my guess is no, not anymore. Because I, the mousetrap I have, not to get too gross, but when the mouse or rat walks in, it steps on an electrically charged plate and dies. Um, my guess is that there have been electrical mousetraps going back for more than 20 years. And so the concept of an electric mousetrap is probably no longer patented. Yes? So once the patent expires, that idea is open forever. Like the pending of someone you know, alters it slightly, maybe and repatents it, and sort of capitalize on it. The underlying idea would be dead forever. What you patented would be dead forever. You can patent an improvement on it, but then you're limited to just that. So let's say again, by way of example, if you're a drug company, you come up with an interesting compound. At the end of the patent's life, it's gone. You could potentially file a use patent for using that patent and that compound in some new and novel way. But it has to be something you haven't been doing for the last 20 years. So that's pretty unlikely. It doesn't generally happen. Yes? What about something like Coca-Cola, um, their formula? So that's a trade secret. Right. Uh, there's, okay. Yeah, so there's, there's lots of this, this copy. You can copyright something. You can trademark something. You can keep something as a trade secret, which basically means... I mean, a trade secret's only good if you can keep it a secret. So if that got out there, Coke might have a case against someone for theft. But if they couldn't prove theft, then they couldn't sue. That's right. I mean, I, actually, I'm not an attorney. I'll never say someone can't sue. <laughs> My guess is that in America, you can sue for almost anything. But <laughs> uh, it would not be because they're using your trade secret. OK, got yeah. it. Yes? Is that it has to literally work. So this person showed that it worked? Well, no. You could invalidate the patent by showing that it doesn't work. But you don't, uh, you have to, it has to be uh, like a, a time machine. If I filed a patent for a time machine today, I think the examiners would say, okay, can you bring that down to DC and show me the time machine? That'd be pretty great. <laughs> or like the, uh, um, oh, what's that called in Star Trek, where you just appear in a new place? Uh, teleporter, thank you. I'm just blanking out. A teleporter, they say, why don't you just teleport to my office at the USPTO and just show me that. Um, something like this, my guess is that they wouldn't bother because it's pretty obvious. It's, it, it will literally, if a mouse made it into the mouth of this thing, there's a vacuum. It's a motion detector. It shuts the gate and it sucks all the air out. Like it's, there's no way it's not going to work. Yeah. It's probably not the most money efficient way to kill a mouse, but it would literally work. But like, I mean, if, I, if there was some kind of like medical uh, something that, that could become therapeutic, you would have to show something that demonstrates it could work at your um, it's a better question for Jeff. If you're interested, he does the lecture again every sort of six months. But also, if it's if it's related to a specific Colombian invention, you could come and talk to us about it. Yeah, I guess um, like all generically speaking, they all need to 
to be able to work. So like, uh, but, yeah, I mean, it depends on what the thing is. Like, if it's software, you would sort of demonstrate that the software, you know, the output of the software is something that looks like what the examiner would think it would look like. Um, uh, you wouldn't have to prove that a compound cures cancer and doesn't kill people. That would be in clinical trials. Nobody would expect that at the time of issuance. But if you want to patent that a compound works on a specific pathway in the body, the examiner, the examiners in the patent office have backgrounds in the art that they practice. So they would have to reasonably believe that that would work. If they don't believe it, they might say, prove it to me. Okay, <clears throat> um, deal terms. So I gave this analogy earlier, but I'm just gonna go in a little bit more detail. Licensing IP is not like buying a car. First of all, well, actually, cars, you may not necessarily know the quality of a car either, but at least you've got a general idea of how old it is. Is it banged up? Can you turn it on and it'll run? A lot of patent licensing, by the time it's licensed, let's say it's licensed in three years, most of our patents take five years to issue as a U.S. patent. So we are often licensing patents that are just patent applications. They may never issue. The U.S. Patent Office might decline them, in which case it's gone. So you're licensing things that don't necessarily have any value. And it's very hard to tell. It's also not clear at the time you're licensing. Remember, this is a negative right. The patent's only value is to stop people from doing things. You're licensing something without necessarily knowing how those claims are going to evolve. The patent office might kill some of them and keep others. They might force you to change the wording. And you don't know if the industry is going to end up practically doing stuff that would read on your patent. So it's unclear the value. Um, it's a, yes? Uh, because of the time frame, will like a researcher or some university, will we start the company first and sort of go through the patent process either as we're going or later on? Or will they usually wait for this process to play out and then try to build the company thereafter? So, uh, yeah, of the hundred, yeah, it's, it's case by case. I mean, of the hundred, some odd licenses we do a year, only 18 are to startups. Um, startups are a very unique case. Um, typically, we would be licensing things to those companies as patent applications, not as a word patents, because they don't want to wait five years. If you're launching a startup, you're not going to wait five years just to avoid the patent costs, because by then, you know, the market will have passed you by. Um, other industries insist on issued, only license issued patents. So, that licensee, we're hanging our business on, you just want to mitigate risk in anything you're doing. So, you want to research what, whatever, how much money you're putting into something and see if it will pass the patent all right. its requirements. To the, extent, all your to the extent you can. But what the patent office allows or doesn't allow is a bit of a mystery sometimes. And again, as we've seen, they can issue patents and then you can have the patent invalidated later. So, they're not always right. Um, so it's not entirely clear, which is why, thankfully, and it's also, it's a 20-year asset. So, you know, it's, you're buying, an, you're licensing an asset that you're trying to think about a 20-year lifespan, over which point your business will evolve, the patent will evolve, the industry around it will evolve. Um, so it's hard to think about how to structure deals that meet everyone's needs. Um, the other thing that's challenging is often this is a repeated game. So when you buy a house, it's not like you're going to also buy that person's country house and also buy their car and also buy their pet 
and you know all your used furniture at some later point, it's all done all at once. When you're licensing a patent, a lot of the times these are repeated games. Um, companies might license from each other over and over and over again. So any you have to the the it's for the MBAs in the room. What hands up from the MBAs? Okay. So in option theory, these are repeated games, right? So uh, it's you're not just playing the prisoner's dilemma once. Playing over and over and over again. And as you learn in negotiations class, that means people start to learn about you. Um, and if you do things that are unethical or overly greedy, you can drive yourself into that sort of lose-lose box pretty quickly. Um, so accordingly, license agreements are complicated. Basically, our license agreement, for instance, at this point is 18 pages long, the boilerplate. It's available on our website if you want to download it. Um, there are multiple versions for different situations. So there's an exclusive license, a non-exclusive license, and it's a combination of legal language and business language. Um, typically, the key terms, there's economics, which we'll talk about more in a little bit. But to your point earlier, I'm sorry, tell me your name. Martina. Martina. Uh, to your question earlier, they can be exclusive or non-exclusive. You could grant rights to make it, and or you can grant rights to use it, or to sell it, or to all three, which is more typical, but not always. Um, you could grant rights to a region, to a territory, meaning China or the U.S. or Canada, uh, to use it only for therapeutic use or diagnostic use, or something else. Um, only for the first three years, or the whole life of the patent, or the patent plus. Uh, you could let allow them to sub turn around and sublicense it to other parties, or not. Um, and there's all sorts of things in there about risk management, like ways to make sure that the university doesn't get sued, things like that. <clears throat> so on the economics, there's no right answer, which is why this is a fun uh, business. Um, there's, there's no single way to do it. It's a balance. So some companies would prefer to pay all their lumps early and then be done. So they'd rather prioritize paying upfront fees and early year fees, even with the knowledge that the patent may never issue. Because they don't want to be on the hook later with equity, like stock in the company, or royalties, which is a percentage of products sold. Other companies typically want, and usually startups for instance, want to have as low upfront cash outlay as possible, which makes total sense. They need to preserve the cash for other uses, like product development. So they would rather have as low fees as possible and back-end everything into equity in the company and royalties. There's no right answer. Different players behave different. And even within a single term, there's a ton of variety. So for instance, just, I just, like, just to dive into royalties, royalties can change over time. Uh, Interestingly, they, some royalties start high and decline over time. So royalties will initially be 5% of product sales and will decline to 1% as you each year as you sell more and more product. Anyone want to take a, a, a stab at a rationale that you would, can imagine somebody would use in a negotiation to say why a royalty rate should decline over time? Okay, so 
You could say over time their, their profit margins are going to fall because you know when you launch a new product you make a forty percent margin. Then there's knockoffs of competitors, and so your margins shrink. So you should pay less. Well, I'm saying within the time of the patent expiry. Post patent expiry usually, yeah. Okay, but other deals, the royalty rates go up over time. They want to take a stab at explaining why you could argue the royalty rate should go up over time. And we're just kind of risk. So if the risk keeps going up, then the royalty starts to go up with the risk. Uh, I would actually flip that around. You'd say after you're selling, after you've sold 10 million products, you've paid back all your initial R&D costs. Yeah. So you're just making nothing but profit. By that point, there's no more risk for you. So you can afford to pay a higher royalty rate. So you can argue this either direction. Neither one's wrong. It just depends on how you look at it. Um, uh, they, they, can, they can be based on gross revenues or net revenues. Um, they can be applied. There can be different royalty rates for diagnostic use versus therapeutic use. Um, they can have caps. They can have minimums. They can have cumulative caps. Uh, they can be perpetual or they could be bought out. Like there could be a clause that says, at any point for $15 million, we can end the royalty rate. Uh, there's no such thing as a right deal. Um, they're just really a, a balance between both parties' objectives. So, you know, licensors in general want the least risk and the most amount of money. Licensees want the biggest leverage and to pay the least. So there's, there's a middle ground. It's all about the negotiation. And everybody wants clarity. So it's every, everyone's interest to get clarity in the license agreement, which is why, so uh, you know, Laura's one of our contract attorneys, which is why it is such a hard job, because trying to actually make sure that the contract is as crystal clear as possible today, that it will envision all possible outcomes 17 years down the road, is essentially impossible. Which is why most of our agreements end up getting amended. So we'll start, the company will get started, and then a couple of years later, they'll come back and go, wait a minute, I'm, you know, I, I made a mistake. I, this doesn't work in the way that we thought it would. So we're going to amend the license and, and renegotiate. Fairly common outcome. Yes? Maybe we'll comment on this later, but um, I was just wondering about the whole process. I have a general sense of the process, but just how your office would work with like a pharma company like, like the stage before where the contract has not been established, sure. getting that established, and then actually transferring the text. Like, how does that all work? Yeah, you guys are great because you're anticipating my slides perfectly. Um, <laughs> uh, at a high level, what happens is we'll, we'll get the invention in the door. We'll file a patent on it. Um, often there needs to be a little bit more development. So we'll may file, uh, you know, put more information in the patent or file a second patent. Um, the licensing officers go out and try to market the technology. Uh, Margie and her team, she also runs our fellows program. So Margie will get the technology up on our websites, on our partners' websites. Uh, we have um, 35 graduate student, 35? 35 graduate student interns. Um, at this point, they all have PhDs. Are they all PhDs? Okay, they all either have or are getting their PhDs. Um, uh, they create marketing campaigns around these technologies and email them out to industry. Yes. The fellows. Yeah. Um, so uh, we do two hundred some on marketing campaigns a year. One hundred. One hundred marketing campaigns a year. <laughs> and it ended with a hundred. Um, uh, 
so we try to solicit interest. Our licensing staff goes to, like Richard, um, just went to a trade show, um, basically where, what was medical devices? Uh, Okay, so what kind of companies were there? Um, Spiker, Ventline, History, like, yeah, different, uh, um, okay. So they'll come and meet with our licensing team and try and they'll say, what do you have? We'll say, here's what we got. Anything interesting? And sometimes they'll go, yeah. Um, they also, a lot of them will track our faculty and read their papers and find out about it that way. Or sometimes faculty have their own relationships. So after that, a negotiation starts. So our licensing officers, Richard and his colleagues, will meet with the licensing uh, with the with their counterparts from the industry, or the entrepreneur, or the venture capitalist, and they'll say, "Wait, what are we talking about? What do you need?" They'll, usually they'll say, "How much?" and then we'll say, "I don't know how to answer that question. What do you need?" <laughs> it sort of depends on what you need. Um, and so you'll talk through what kind of rights they need, and then at some point they'll say, okay, make me an offer, typically. So we then work to look at, um, uh, we, we do everything off benchmarks, so we have access to databases of what deal terms are for comparable deals based on comparable technologies. It's not perfect, but at least it's a starting point. And typically, um, they get expressed in a term sheet. So the first thing that gets exchanged is a term sheet, which is kind of like a summary of a license. So uh, you'll see these boxes define most of the important parts of the license agreement. And we'll sort of put in like a, you know, an upfront payment of blank. So the licensing officer will put in a number. Um, how much equity? What are the milestone payments? What's the royalty rate? And then you'll send that over to the other party and they'll go, you know, no, 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 and send something back, and then you send something back, and it's sort of a discussion. And then eventually, when you have a term sheet done, typically it's sort of signed or agreed upon, and then you turn it over to the attorneys to turn that term sheet into a license agreement. And then there's a whole bunch more negotiation. This is a specific question, but so if, if I'm a pharma company and I'm looking for technology, I'm going to Hollywood site, I'm going to Penn site, I'm going to site. There's no central place that they can go to. There, there have been, it's so funny, it's really funny you should ask that. Um, doesn't that sound like that would make life so much easier? So bizarrely, there have been many common websites where people can post their technologies in a central database and have you search, enabling licensees to search across all the patents. The Kauffman Foundation funded one of them called iBridge. There are others. Uh, none of them have ever taken off. For some reason, even though all those aggregates across the whole industry, like eBay, people seem to prefer to go licensing, in licensing people generally will say, I'm gonna be in town in New York on April, let me come by and talk to your team. Or they will look at our website. We get almost no leads in from those central I don't know why. Are they open to everybody? Yep. I mean, that's probably why universities may have more credibility. Yeah, but all the stuff on their site is all the same stuff that's on our site. And our site's also open to everybody. Like, all of you guys can go search on our website. It's organized by keyword, by faculty member, by subject area, by taxonomy. Central locations are open for anyone to go and Oh, no, sorry. Only universities. Okay. 
Yeah, so like the Kauffman Foundations was like Harvard, Yale, Stanford, Columbia, Caltech, Carnegie Mellon. And for yeah, some reason, people still prefer to come to the individual sites. I don't know why. What's the central one called? Uh, well, it was called iBridge, but is it shut down now or does it still exist? I've been a little live, it's kind of defunct. Yeah. There's I, a number of others. Um, Sparkup is a new one. Oh, yeah. Um, Flintbox is another one. So. Yeah. If you want to get a flavor, I mean, I'm not trying to market our, our business, but if you want to just like poke around somewhere, check out the Columbia sites, techventures.columbia.edu. And you can just search on all of our technologies and just play around to see what kinds of stuff tends to pop up. I will say one reason, I mean, Columbia alone has, how many assets do we have up on our website now? 1,200. 1,200 unlicensed patents on our website. So if you added up all the universities, there'd be hundreds of thousands of patents. It could just be overwhelming. How many, how many of the university's patents are uh, bio, Medical pharma versus consumer or <clears throat> so I, I don't have that answer. I don't have that answer because you can't answer that question so easily anymore. Um, half of the engineering school here are working on engineering engineering-oriented technologies for life science. Um, you know, DNA sequencing, optics, imaging, things like that. And at the medical center, you're seeing an increasing number of you know web apps, um, iPhone apps. Um, that are more consumer oriented. So it's really hard to say. I would say in general, about half of our inventions come from the Morningside campus, which tends to be physical sciences based, and about half the inventions come from the medical center campus. But I think it's probably more like 75% are life oriented in some way or other. 75%? It's a guess. When you think about the engineering school, biomedical engineering files a ton of patents. A lot of folks in electrical engineering these days are doing uh, you know, life science related patents. In mechanical engineering, you've got surgical robotics. So it's really hard to draw the line. In fact, the same professor, Demetrius Anastasio, who invented the patent, who did the patents behind MPEG, changed his entire focus after those patents and now does um, uh, computational biology as applied towards oncology. So he's looking for cancer cures using the same techniques he used to create DVD compression. So he's basically data analytics just applied to a different field. Um, I'm going to stop there. I have a section on license negotiations, but I am now really out of time. So I'm going to stop. <laughs> um, I will say, first of all, thanks for joining. Secondly, if this is interesting to you, um, I would encourage you to check out the class. Uh, it's a three-hour class once a week for six weeks, but of each three-hour block, about two hours are we're bringing panels of experts in to have debates. So for instance, um, we've got five entrepreneurs who launch patent technology, patented com patent-based companies, coming in to talk about their patent strategies. I've got three uh, what's generously called, what are typically called non-practicing entities, what other people might call patent trolls, are coming in to talk about their business model. Uh, we've got Jay Walker, the founder of Priceline and now the founder of Patent Properties, coming in to talk about new models in, in um, uh, monetizing patents. We've got uh, patent attorneys from Google, IBM, Nokia, uh, GE, coming in on a single panel to talk, to talk about Fortune 500 strategies. So, um, it should be a fun class. Uh, if you're interested, there's the link. And down here in the right-hand corner, 
Um, I would be remiss and also scolded later if I did not point out all the different ways you can follow us on social media. And our, uh, there's our website as well. So um, thanks for coming. Good luck with your ventures. And if you're interested, um, email us. Thank you for listening. For more information on Columbia Technology Ventures, visit techventures.columbia.edu.